Hello, hello, welcome back. It's Leading Women in Tech Time. I'm your host, Tony Collis, and today I have another great interview for you today. Today I'm speaking to the fabulous Jen Moll. She started her career off in an unusual way for a woman in tech, having studied Russian languages and international relations at college. Um, she then moved to Moscow, uh, where she actually contracted a serious case of the travel bug. <laughs> And she's studied in Ireland, England, and Estonia, but she started out her career in London, married an Australian, traveled all over Europe, has worked all over the world since. And today she is working in strategy, but in a tech company. She's previously spent 13 years working for PricewaterhouseCoopers in London, Moscow, Boston, and Atlanta. And as part of that, realized that she had a passion for supporting cybersecurity. In particular, she supported the US cybersecurity and privacy team at PwC. What she now does is work collaboratively with the executive team at her current company, Axio, to set and evaluate strategy and key initiatives that help the clients of the company she works for prioritize critical cyber investments. And as we know, cyber is part of tech. So I love her story because she comes at the tech world with a different lens. And I know we have many listeners of this podcast who aren't the traditional techie. I also know we've got many listeners of this podcast who've pivoted into being a traditional techie, whatever that means to you, (laughs) later on in their career. And so I wanted to bring to you today this interview with Jen, because I think it tells you some interesting roots and experiences through the world of technology. So without further ado, let's get Jen onto the show. You're listening to the Leading Woman in Tech podcast, where we talk about real leadership and what this means for the world of tech, the techniques, tips, and strategies you can use to become a standout leader. I'm your host, Tony Collis, tech leadership coach, strategist, and coffee lover. And in each episode, I share my best insights designed to make your success not just simple, but inevitable. Whether you're on the way to the C-suite, an emerging leader, or a budding entrepreneur, this is the podcast you need to become a lit-up leader and turn your tech passion into a career you love. Welcome to the show, Jen. It's great to have you here. I can't thank you enough for having me. Thank you so much, Tony. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure to get you on here. From the first moment we met, I was like, this is a lady I have to have on the podcast. But to help listeners understand why I thought that, can you start with something I love to ask everybody, but share with us your career journey, highlights, the lowlights, they're often very telling, and how you came to be VP of strategy, which is such a cool title, by the way, at Axio. I have a pretty non-traditional path, I guess. Um, I studied Russian language and literature and international relations for my undergrad degree, got to study in Moscow, and then um, really got the travel bug. And so that uh, influenced my career immensely. After graduating from my undergrad, I went to the UK to study. Then I went to Estonia to do a little bit more studying and then moved back to the UK and worked for a number of years. And what I found at the time was that my Russian language skills were actually really interesting to people. And so my first role um, was really about helping companies understand their potential business partners in the former Soviet Union. And I was one of 
the only, in fact, uh, non-native Russian speaker on a team of, of Russians helping companies do reputational due diligence uh, before investing, particularly in Russia, Ukraine, um, and some of the other countries in the former Soviet Union. So I got to travel quite a bit, specifically to Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, um, and those skill sets just kind of kept me progressing. So I had started off with a small company based in London. Um, we had so much fun and it was a great place to really learn the craft. Then I got moved up to Deloitte to help them on some of their um, major fraud investigations at the time, which involved corruption. So I did a lot of Russian language research to help with that. And rinse and repeat, um, moved to PwC in the UK to do the same. Um, helped them set up the PwC practice in Moscow before I moved back to the US. So um, I think my, my interest in living abroad, studying abroad, and then ultimately in foreign languages helped get me into a role that I had never even heard of mm -hmm. when I was studying. And then um, fast forward a little bit, we, we moved back to the United States. I have an Australian husband. So um, obviously I'm taking international relations really seriously. <laughs> and um, so we moved back to the United States. I have a nine-year-old daughter now and you know, traveling abroad isn't quite so easy with a small child. Mm -hmm. And so when I came back from maternity leave, I was looking at making a change in order to really be more present and um, fortunately found cybersecurity. So um, some of my fraud and corruption skill sets translated very nicely into some of what I call the softer side of cybersecurity. And so I started on some of those types of projects. Not surprisingly, Russian language um, is still a positive in cybersecurity. So um, from there, I actually helped PwC establish a singular cybersecurity practice. The firm had multiple cyber teams, and they brought it under the rubric of one leader into one P&L. And so I helped uh, that process and helped lead operations for PwC's cyber team and just had the absolute pleasure and joy of being able to see so many different sides of cybersecurity at one place and one time and having so many really gifted practitioners be able to answer all of my questions about how to do this and what this means and how to approach that. And so um, I just got really lucky and hit the jackpot in terms of a winding path that um, ultimately led me to something very interesting. The role at PwC where I got to really experience pulling a P&L together helped me understand the role of strategy and the success that it has in really congealing a singular um, client team together. Obviously, PwC's cyber practice is quite significant. There's a lot of people there. Um, but having a singular strategy for everyone to support and focus on is really what makes a team a team, in my view. There's obviously a lot of cultural effects um, that have to trickle down from that strategy. And that's what I really loved about the role was being able to work with the cyber um, leaders, being able to help them define and refine a vision and then execute that on a daily basis. And after that role, I knew I wanted to do it again, but on a smaller scale. And that's how I found myself at Axio. Um, we are... 
a team of approximately 40 people um, and obviously looking to grow. We help clients understand um, their cyber risk in ways that they probably hadn't focused on before. And a, a big buzzword that's popular right now is cyber risk quantification. We actually help companies do cyber risk quantification to understand the business disruption that can fall from cybersecurity events so that they can plan and budget and really get their leadership teams on board to understand why their spend on cybersecurity is so important and how to spend that last dollar. Mm. Wow, there's a, there's a lot packed in there that I want to dive into, actually. Um, the first thing right at the top there, you mentioned the softer side of cybersecurity. Um, I know you and I had a discussion about soft skills prior to hit record, um, the fact that I like to call them real skills. Can you explain to us a little bit, what do you mean by the softer side of cybersecurity? How does that tie in with real skills, soft skills, whatever you want to call them? Yeah, so some of my friends from PwC have tremendous skills in, you know, cyber penetration testing or incident response, like, you know, the forensic side of investigations. Mm. Um, some of them are really gifted at identity and access management, privileged access management implementations. You don't want me doing that work, right? That's, <laughs> I'm not a coder. I am not um, skilled in those ways. I think where I like to try to help people is pulling on the business benefits and helping people who maybe aren't so technical see what the business benefit is of doing something in cybersecurity. Um, you know, in my first role, I had um, a boss at one point who was just a real stickler about our written reports. And he would just ruin my written reports, just scratch them to pieces and, mm. you know, tell me, go again. And he taught me so much about the ability and the power of written and verbal communication. And that's something that I think a lot of, um, a lot of very technical and skilled technical practitioners just haven't built up to the same extent because they have such high demand skills. But actually, if you can't mm -hmm. convey a cyber risk to the C-suite or to the board, you're yeah. actually not dealing with the problem. You might be dealing with it in a silo, but the whole business needs to be part of the solution. It can't just be pushed off as a technical problem. And I think that is um, sometimes that translation is what um, I'm able to help with and, and what businesses really need in terms of understanding the broader context behind mm. cybersecurity. I, I love that you mentioned that because actually that's something I see applying across every discipline I work with within the broader context of tech. If you can't communicate what you're doing to the C-suite, you basically you're irrelevant. Not because you should be, but because nobody understands how important you are. <laughs> and I think most of us don't understand how important that skill is until we start doing interdisciplinary work. And I love your journey because it highlights that you don't have to have a, a particular set of background to work in cybersecurity. If I've you're the first person I've met who works in CS, who isn't got like the 20 year history of cybersecurity as their background. And that's part of what I find fascinating because I see this across every other discipline. I'm like, does this apply to cybersecurity? Yes, it does in you, right? Would you say that in your experience, obviously you've done a lot of different things in your career, that that 
communication piece applies across the board? 100%. I'm a big believer in it doesn't matter how good you are in anything. If you can't communicate it, you haven't, you haven't gone the distance to show why it's relevant, just like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is where, you know, you always hear about cybersecurity. There's not enough people. We can't hire enough people. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's just not enough people out there to satisfy the market needs. And I'm like, I disagree, right? There are mm. enough people. They might not look like the people that you have, but cybersecurity is an area of fast growth, huge interest. It's in the news all the time. People are interested. You might have to train them more than what you expected, but the people are out there if you're willing to look maybe a little bit outside of traditional mm. parameters. Absolutely. And I, I think your journey is case in point of that, particularly the strategy side of it. And we're going to move on to how you got into the strategy role in just a minute. But I want to just ask you a quick question for the uninitiated. What is a PL? There are some listeners who are not that high up in their careers and might not know what PL is. Can yeah, you tell us? Absolutely. So my my version of that is um, we had a, a profit and loss team, right? So we had a business unit that had its own budget. And we had to report our results. So it was a actual business unit rather than, um, you know, sometimes, especially in highly matrixed firms, you can have verticals and you can have horizontals. Mm. And actually accounting for all of those things can get a little bit murky because they can sit in multiple places. What I meant was that we actually had a, um, a dedicated team with dedicated mm. results and a dedicated budget that we had to report out on. I think it is such a powerful thing if at some point in our careers, we have worked in such a team where we have been responsible for profit and loss, the P&L, because you're right, many of us were in matrix organizations, and especially those of us who are engineers, myself included, we aren't as engaged in the P&L side of it. It's like, well, everything we do enables the business to operate. So how do we quantify the P&L? But at the end of the day, if you want to be a leader, you have to care about the business. We live in a capitalist society. That means we care about profit, right? So I love that you got that early on. Would you say that was a core piece of what got you into strategy? 100%, yes. Um, I, I think it was a really foundational moment in my career where, you know, you take a look at a lot of things that you've seen in the past and what's worked and what's not worked. And if you could do this again and, you know, how does this all come together? But when you're starting basically with a, a bunch of, of units that you're pulling together for the first time, it's, it's almost a blank slate. Um, mm. And I love blank slates. I love creating things. And we frequently said, you know, we're building the plane while we're flying it, which is a little bit intimidating, right? Because obviously you've got to keep everybody moving and you've got to deliver on a number of things. And you don't always have the luxury of sitting down and planning things out as you might want to. But that was a really important moment for me. And I know we've talked a little bit about this, but I talk about, you know, being a recovering perfectionist and not being able to plan everything out and still needing to move things forward was a very uncomfortable spot for me. But actually, it was a huge place of growth. And it was really necessary for me to be able to feel comfortable doing different things in my career that I probably wouldn't have without the immediacy and the pressure and the momentum <laughs> of, of doing that role. No, I love that. Well, let's go back to your career as 
what has brought you to being a VP of strategy? Um, from the discussion today and also our previous conversations, you seem to have a reputation for being the person that moves projects forward, solving problems, and you take on bigger and bigger tasks. Why do you think that is? What skills have you personally developed that mean you have this reputation for being the big problem solver? I think more than anything else, I'm pragmatic. Um, and so this kind of goes with the idea of a recovering perfectionist, right? But, <laughs> you know, progress is better than perfection. And mm. it's taken me a long time to embrace that. <laughs> uh, but actually, if you remain problem focused... And you think about what is going to get you to the answer that you need in the most expedited and sustainable way, that pragmatic approach, even if people disagree with where you're coming from, they can see that you're trying very hard to execute on something and make their lives better or make that problem go away. And so I think pragmatism, um, a pragmatic problem focus and the just relentless communication, right? This is what I'm doing. Mm. This is how we're doing it. This is where we want to get to. This is why we're doing it. Um, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Um, I think is really important for people to see. You know, I, I talk a lot about being ruthlessly honest and transparent, right? Um, sometimes weeks come and you don't get as much done as you wanted because there was a fire drill over here or, you know, you didn't even expect this thing over there to happen and it consumed a lot of your time. When that happens, I just say, hey, we didn't expect this to happen. This is really exciting development. We had to chase this down. Or this was disappointing and we had to chase that down. Whatever it was, just allowing people the insight into what's going on and how you're spending your time and why you've chosen to spend that, I think, gets people on board so that, again, when you don't have the progress in a quarter that you were hoping to have, it's very transparent and clear to people why you missed mm -hmm. whatever mark you missed. I love the fact that you highlight that, that relentless communication. Again, this is something I see basically nobody doing enough of. I think all of us second guess and think, well, I've already said that three times. How can, why would I say again? It actually took me running my own business and people saying, you have to tell people 10 times that you've got this offer. And I'm like, I've already told them three times. I can't possibly say it again. They're going to get bored of me. And realizing people had not heard that I had a thing. I was like, oh, this is what I was missing in my corporate days. <laughs> this is why it's so important. That relentless over-communication, what feels like over-communication to us is so incredibly important as leaders because you've got to say it 10 times and probably in 10 different ways for everybody to get on board, Right. I, it's so funny you say that because I used to feel the same way. And I, I think I have a better appreciation of it now that I have a child in school, because I think teachers have to find so many different ways of communicating because people learn in so many different ways. I personally um, love to see things. I am a visual person. You put something on a blackboard and I'm going to get it. Um, you can stand and talk to me for 20 minutes and I might not understand something, but, you know, uh, a slide and I'll get it. Um, I think everybody has those preferences and the predilections. So I used to um, talk about doing like a newsletter. We would have like, you know, a Slack channel. We would have um, open hours. We would have, you know, monthly calls. We would have open, like, we just tried so many different things. And what 
we found is that some people would join open hours, some people would listen in on the calls, some people wouldn't join the calls live, but they would listen to, you know, um, the replays. Basically, whatever you think that you're doing, it's probably not enough. And mm. I think one of the things that we get really stuck in is this idea of, well, I've done it once or twice or thrice, so it's time to move on. But actually, if you ask people, like, what works for you? People are, will tell you what works for them. You just have to be receptive enough to, to move. And I think that's one of the pieces that I was reflecting on to, today, Tony, when I was preparing after our last conversation. It's really hard to ask for feedback. Mm. And it's intimidating. And especially for a recovering perfectionist, you're already hard enough on yourself. Um, you don't want people to be as hard on yourself as you already are, right? So it, it's one of those um, intimidating moments. But I think the moment that you get better at asking for feedback and then acting on the feedback, when people see that loop mm. that you're actually changing, they are so much more likely to give you good quality feedback because they see that things are actually changing. They see their ideas incorporated. And so even though it's really um, can be very nerve wracking, especially, you know, when you own your own business or when you start a team, you're pouring every ounce of your body into making it successful, right? Mm. You're 100% focused on making the practice successful, making your business successful, getting that feedback is actually what helps you to be more successful. Um, and I think that is a real lesson learned for me from, from my role at PwC. Mm, well, let's dig into the perfectionism a little bit, um, because it's a topic that I know is dear to, or rather recovering perfectionism is something dear to many of our hearts. Um, I'm a recovering perfectionist too. And I think you have some interesting wisdom here. In particular, you you mention how you are focused on like the problem statement and how to solve that more quickly. And I, I resonate with that so much because I will say to people, if we can redefine perfection to be about delivering on time to the required standard, rather than for a lot of us, perfectionism historically has been, I can't possibly put this out the door because it's not good enough. But the damage is we don't deliver. We overpromise and underdeliver. That's the perception externally, especially if we're not telling anybody about it. We're trying to create this perfection, but actually perfect would be delivering on time to standard. Do you agree with that? Like assessment of like what perfection should be for all of us? I think it's such a healthier definition and I'm going to steal it, Tony. So. Oh, good. <laughs> yes, 100%. You know, I... Um, I'm one of those like commas, full stop, period person, you know, like everything has to look great. Mm. Um, an important moment in my life was actually about 11 years ago, my dad passed from pancreatic cancer. And we went to see this um, specialist at the University of Pennsylvania. And he basically had three paths that he could have gone down. And, um, you know, the doctor laid them out very clearly. And at the end, she said, look, you're going to make a choice. Whatever choice you make is the choice. A month mm. from now, you can't go back and say, what if I had chosen B instead of A? Because you didn't. You chose A. Mm -hmm. You can always choose a different path in a month's time, but you can't change the past. 
And so I've tried to take that, um, that sentiment into my career as well. Mm. Progress, not perfection, right? Like if you think that you're delivering X by the end of the month, you've made a choice on how you're going to do that. Two weeks later, you might say, actually, it shouldn't be a Word document. It should be a PowerPoint or whatever it is, right? You can choose to take all of that and do something better with it, with the benefit of the feedback process that you've incorporated, or because now that you're 50% of the way done, you see actually this is the right way of doing it. But you don't need to second guess the previous work that you've done. You can just pivot and say, this is the way that we're going to move forward. This is the better approach going forward. And so I think having a healthier idea of what endpoints should be, it's not about commas. Nobody cares. Literally, Mm. I'm the only person that cares. Right? Just saying, like, this is what we got to this month. Here's the revenue that we um, achieved. Or here's the new idea that we've put out into the market, or here's the new piece of collateral that we've shared, or here's, wow, we just launched a new website. That is what people should be taking away, not the commas and the full stops or the periods. Um, And so I think if we all gave ourselves that sense of achievement from helping to pragmatically solve problems, instead of saying, the commas were in place. (laughs) I think that would be better for everyone's mental health. Absolutely. We have to give ourselves permission to do that, of course. But um, I'm completely sold on everything you just said. I think we would all just be in a much better place if we could let go of the commas. I remember when I started making mistakes and stuff and being okay with it. It was just so hard. (laughs) My PhD thesis, my dissertation in the U.S., the first page has a typo on it and and it's, you know, it's published, you know, it's in the National Library um, as a book because that's what happens when you write a PhD thesis. And it's horrific to me that it has a typo on the first page. And I'm like, wait, hold on. You wouldn't read it for the typo. You read it because of the results. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the science. The only person it matters to is you. Absolutely. My husband, when I pointed out to him, because he's a stickler for grammar and spelling, he laughed at me and I was like, damn it. He proofread it as well. It's his fault. <laughs> I shouldn't say that too loud. Okay. <laughs> to pull other people in. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, before we move to the quick fire round, I do want to ask you one more question, which is given how quickly you've risen up in your career and how extraordinary the work you're now doing is, can you give us your number one piece of advice? For a woman in tech, considering moving up, leveling up to an executive position. I think the hardest thing is taking a step back from your day because your day is so busy Mm. to really consider what it is that you want to do and how you want to spend your time. Mm -hmm. So for me, I am completely excited about helping um, leaders identify refine and execute on their strategy. That to me was what I knew I wanted to do next. And so finding that was the most important piece of my vision. But so many people that I talk to don't have a vision. They just know that they're not happy where they are. So if you don't know what you want, it's hard to find something that you're going to be excited about other than just it's different, Mm. right? You want a long-term plan not just a short-term 
I don't like this, or I don't like my boss, or I don't like whatever, right? So I really encourage people to have a vision about what you want. Think about how you can be additive in that, in that position, and then craft that story. Beautiful. I love that. I love that so much. Let's move on to the quick fire round. Tell me, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Yeah, I would say it's really don't look back. Look forwards. Um, for someone who is a recovering perfectionist, you know, I still think about mistakes that I made as an intern. So hooray for me. Um, but when you think about the mistakes that you made as an intern, I try to use those moments where I am still recovering to say, okay, well, how can I learn? How can I pull that learning forward rather than just flogging myself for making a mistake? Um, I think all of our careers are kind of cumulative experiences. There are things that I learned studying in Moscow that I use in my daily life. There are things that um, I learned working in broad teams that I am able to say now, okay, I, I see how that worked and I see why we did it that way. So take forward what you learned that's a positive. And when things don't go well and it's a negative, learn how you want to be in the future because you can condition yourself to do that. It just takes the time and you have to give yourself the permission to say, in future, I'm going to change and do it this way. So for me, it's, it's don't look back. I love that. And that fits in so beautifully with the advice you got in that, you know, you can only make the choice that you're making right now. You can't go back and make other choices. I always say to people, live life with no regrets. Everything that came before is just information. And actually, if you didn't have all that information, you wouldn't be making the choice you're making today. That's a beautiful thing for us to all have. Okay. Many of us are choosing to transition careers right now. It's uh, still going on, the great resignation, despite everything on the horizon that may or may not be coming. <laughs> uh, it's still happening. What networking tips do you have that you'd like to share? Because everybody sort of has a bit of an icky thing with networking. Yes, I am a big believer in circles. So I have some really close, close friends who are in my industry or in adjacent industries. Um, when I was looking um, to join Axio, several of them read my resume, made it better. Um, I've done the same thing for them, right? So having a tight circle who will give you honest feedback and really push you on, well, you chose that here, but actually I think your story is much better conveyed with this statement instead um, is really crucially important because they're going to be the ones who give you the honest assessment about fit and really push you to hone that vision that we were talking about earlier. I think outside of, of that, you know, it's really intimidating and I hate walking into a room and being asked to network, right? Like I, I just... I freeze and mm. I get very nervous about yeah. it. But actually LinkedIn is such an easy way of meeting people, um, looking for second degree connections, you know, connecting with colleagues and saying, hey, you know this person over there, would you introduce me? I've had really great success and people are really open to those types of connections. Um, and so I definitely would recommend doing some research getting that close group of friends to hone, help you hone your, your message and hone your um, resume. And then just start connecting with people that you think you might be able to help. 
Love that. And shameless plug here, if you are looking for a circle, go check out the leading women in tech Slack community. Link is in the show notes. Join us. Your circle might just be there waiting for you. <laughs> um, but I'm right there with you at LinkedIn. I think COVID, actually, one of the silver lines to come out of it was an expectation of virtual networking. And for the likes of you and me, I'm one of those women who'd hide in the corner behind the cannabis and the champagne flute because I do not want to speak to another human in person. For some reason, LinkedIn, totally easy. That's how we met. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> I agree. I mean, I would much prefer to get an email from somebody saying, hey, I saw you posted this. This is super interesting. How did you get there? Rather than walk into a room of 100 people. Oh, mm. my God. My heart already. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to mindset then, because my next question is, what is your favorite mindset tip to help leaders, particularly women in tech leaders? It's definitely progress, not perfection. Love it. Focus on the progress. What is your what is your problem statement? What's your end goal? Make progress against that. Oh, that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. Actually, uh, one of the things I talk about a lot is focusing on the gain, not the gap. Like if you focus how far you've come and where you are right now, rather than how far you haven't achieved, sometimes it's easier to let go of that perfectionism. So I, I love love your take on that. It's a similar way of looking at the same issue. Love it. Um. How can people connect with you, find out more about what you do, follow you? <laughs> yeah, join me on LinkedIn, please. Um, I am very happy to connect and share stories or get perspectives. And, you know, I'm sure it will be mutually beneficial. I just urge everyone to think about it as a mutually beneficial platform, right? Um, everybody is out. I think everybody in cybersecurity and technology is generally curious. That's how we got to where we are. So, we want to know about you as much as you want to know about us. Love it. Love it. And we will make sure that Jen's uh, LinkedIn URL is in the show notes. So go check that out if you'd like to connect with her. She's just offered to be in the next person in your network. So if you're listening, and I can't possibly network on LinkedIn. She's just publicly offered to connect with you. Like, And same goes with me. I hope you all know that listening. If you connect with me on LinkedIn, I basically never turn anybody down unless they're like, sending me like 20 marketing emails even the marketing emails I tend to accept and then I'm like no no just shut up now <laughs> um, so connect with us all right Jen thank you so much for being here but have you any final thoughts you want to share absolutely I think the most important thing that we can do for ourselves is get better at asking for receiving and then actioning that feedback because if people are giving you feedback it's because they really want you to see something it's so awkward to give people feedback right so if you genuinely ask for it and people are brave enough to meet you where you've asked them to meet you at, it's a gift and you should take it and use it and keep improving. So many nuggets of wisdom today. Thank you so much, Jen, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I'm sure everybody listening does too. My pleasure. Thanks, Tony. And to listeners, as always, remember, stay on your tech leadership game, follow your dreams because the world really does need that uniqueness and your non-perfectionism as a leading woman in tech. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, check out how to get more of my help and some free resources. It's where I take what I talk about in this podcast and really help you apply it. Hop on over to tonycollis.com and check out Work With Tony and free resources in the menu bar. Until next time, this was Tony Collis on the Leading Woman in Tech podcast.